The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 34. Otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as, it, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The word of the Lord. Let's pray before we get started here. God, help me to take these words and to explain them in a way that manifests the glory of Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So here we are. We are working our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And um, if you were paying attention when Mallory uh, was, was reading there, we come to one of the um, harder pieces of Scripture. Um, in verse 29, Paul is going to say something that is admittedly a hard text. Uh, but there is um, no mistakes with God. And God didn't accidentally fall asleep at the wheel and something funky Uh, slip into the scriptures that we have no explanation for. Um, But what we're going to see is that Paul is doing something um, with specificity. He is talking to the Corinthians in a certain way about the resurrection of the dead. And what he's doing is he's winding down his argument as he is taking this idea that indeed Christ has been raised from the dead, that the resurrection of the dead is as true as the day is long. And so what we're going to see this morning is that Paul is going to, with one last effort in his argument for what the resurrection of the dead is about, he's going to seek to connect this belief of the resurrection to the realities of Christian practice. And so when we Study these verses, 29 through 34. This is what we're going to see Paul do. So over the past several weeks, Paul has been taking this idea of the resurrection of the dead, and he's been unpacking it in a very, very, very logical sort of way. Um, If you ever want to see Paul argue well for a truth in Scripture, you go to 1 Corinthians 15, and it's probably one of the best examples given to us by God As Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sought to unpack this idea of the resurrection of the dead. So, if you remember, the first thing that Paul did was he sought to address this false belief which was existing about the resurrection of the dead in Corinth. There were some people who were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. This is what they began to believe. Paul taught opposite of this when he showed up in Corinth. He preached Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ raised from the dead on the third day. They believed it, they received it, but now there's been some drift. And so Paul is coming to them. He's going to address this false belief, this doctrine drift that is going on inside the church. 
He said to them, listen, if Christ has not been raised, listen, there's a whole host of negative and unacceptable consequences that come our way. The gospel rides and dies on the truth that Jesus Christ is no longer in the grave. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, Paul says, the gospel is essentially emptied of its substance. It's just like a hollow shell. Faith in Jesus Christ becomes useless because faith rests in the realities of the gospel. If the gospel is bunk, then faith in Christ just becomes bunk. Our witness about God eventually becomes a lie because what do we witness about God? He actually raised him from the dead. And so then what we do is we make God a liar and we make ourselves a liar. We are actually still in our sins because the reason why we have forgiveness for our sins is because Jesus is no longer in the grave. So if he's in the grave, we are still set, caught in our sins. And ultimately, the dead in Christ who've gone on before us, they are trusting in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation, only to die and stand before God and God go, "Mm, sorry, like I didn't really, Jesus didn't really cover and atone for your sins and you're still caught in your sin. You're actually going to have to, to experience eternal judgment now. So Paul says, listen, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, listen, there are a whole host of negative and unacceptable consequences that come as a result. The second thing he did was he turned and he countered the Corinthians' false belief then by confirming that indeed Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead. Christ's resurrection from the dead, it exists as an irrefutable certainty. And the certainty of Christ's resurrection is what guarantees our future resurrection from the dead. And so having said these things, now Paul is going to turn to his last argument, his last unit of thought in regard to this idea of the resurrection of the dead. And what you you can do in order to understand how Paul is thinking here in these last verses, 29 through 34, is you can think of Paul like like this boxer, this old grizzled veteran boxer. And just as a boxer knows how to throw key punches and then draw an end to a fight whenever he's ready for the fight to end, so Paul is doing the same thing through his teaching in regard to the resurrection of the dead. He's, he's thrown the left jab of refutation, and he's, he's stuck that, that punch. He's thrown the right jab of confirmation. He's told them, don't believe this way, now believe this way. And this morning, what he's going to do is he's going to go for the haymaker. He's going to try to land the uppercut. He's going to try to stick this haymaker on the chin of false belief with one last argument. And what Paul's going to show us this morning is this idea. The resurrection of the dead is supported by Christian experience. We're going to see that his refutation and his confirmation about the resurrection of the dead, it's centered on the realities of Jesus Christ. Now what he's going to do is he's going to just one last time talk about the realities of the resurrection of the dead, and he's going to shift, though, his focus from Christ to the Christian. And he's going to begin to talk about how the resurrection of the dead is actually supported. It's implied. It can be corroborated by Christian experience. So as we take these verses 29 through 34, we're going to divide them up into three different ways, three different road signs, sort of headings that are going to help us march through our verses this morning. And those three headings are this, no sense, no sacrifice, and no deception. No sense, no sacrifice, and no deception. So as we turn to uh, our copy of Scripture, 
Hopefully, if you've still got uh, your Bibles open before you, you can look in your copy of Scripture in verse 29. What we're going to see is this, that Paul's going to first show the Corinthians that, listen, if the dead are not raised, then it makes absolutely no sense for you to be doing what you're doing. If the dead are not raised like, like you're arguing for, then why on earth are you giving yourself over to the very thing that you are doing? It would make no sense. Verse 29, Paul writes this, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So, starting with this verse, Paul turns his focus from Christ to the Christian, and in doing so, he shows that a certain practice which was being done by the Corinthians actually gives support to the idea that the dead do rise, that there is a resurrection of the dead. So in Corinth, there were people who were being baptized on behalf of the dead. It's just right there as plain as day, the first part of verse 29. Now, what we need to do is understand a couple of things. When when we read a verse like this, our theological eyebrow goes up a little bit. It's like, what's that about? Like, that's sort of bizarre, right? Like, people living, saying, I'm going to go back there into the baptistry, go underwater, come up out of the water, and it's not for myself, it's actually for people who have died. We, we read this, that's what the verse is saying, and we have to admit it's unusual in the least. And when we read a verse like this, the questions that come to mind are legion. Things like, so who exactly was being baptized and who were they being baptized for? Why exactly were the Corinthians doing something like this? What effects did they hope this baptism would have for that, for that dead person? So you read verse 29 and other hard texts, questions abound, and there's been no shortage of attempts to explain what Paul is writing about. One of the commentators I was reading studying said he counted at least 40 different explanations of people trying to explain what was going on in verse 29. So when you take up the task of studying verse 29, what you find is that there's a boatload of ideas of what someone thinks Paul is saying, but eventually every commentator worth their salt eventually comes to this point where they're like, well, I really, we don't really know what's going on. Like we don't know the context that was existing during that time. So at one point, Paul and the Corinthians knew what was going on but since Paul didn't record for us the whys, the whats, and the hows of what was going on with people being baptized on behalf of the dead, that's, that um, explanation, that knowledge, just simply over the course of history, has, has been lost to us. But even with that being true, it still begs the question of what do we do with this verse? Like Just because we can't figure out the exact context of why the Corinthians were doing this. That doesn't mean this verse, verse 29, has no effect on us as believers. That there's, It's no good. You just read it and go, well, just chalked it up into the category of a piece of Scripture that doesn't mean anything for me as a believer. That's not true. That's not the way we think about Scripture. All of Scripture is God's revelation to us, and it is for us so that we may grow in life and grow in godliness. Verse 29 exists in that realm. So we still have to beg the question, what do we do with this verse? In order to answer that question, we need to just establish a couple, a couple of things, okay? Whenever we bump into a hard text like this, we are not allowed to go hog wild with our own interpretation. 
That's just a rule of scriptural interpretation. I just want to build some categories for you right now. The Bible is easy to understand, but that doesn't mean the Bible never has hard texts that we have to wrestle with. This falls under the category of a hard text. You read this and go, like, what does this mean? I mean, usually, you know, it's 7.30, 6.30 in the morning. You have a cup of coffee. You're barely trying to wake up. You read this, and you're like, mercy sakes. What in the world? Man, give me something else, right? Give me a psalm or flip it. Get somewhere where I can understand this, you know. The Bible has hard text. This is what we see, see in front of us. But, but what we're not allowed to do is bump into a hard text like this and go, Oh, man, it's in the Bible. It's hard. And then all of a sudden this thought goes, whoop, zips into your mind and go, well, that's what's what it be. And then we just run off with it. That's not the way we encounter and interact with Scripture. One of my favorite verses is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, where Peter is writing to some believers, and he gives this sidebar commentary at the end of his second letter on the letters which Paul has been writing to other believers. It's a phenomenal piece of scripture. If you haven't read 2 Peter in a while, I put it before you. It is just beautiful. We actually might um, go work through that um, later, later this year, early, early next year. But there comes this point in time where Peter is writing to the believers, and he says, listen, I know Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now listen, there are some things in these letters of Paul that are hard to understand. It's like, man, one that just makes me feel a little bit better. It's like if the Apostle Peter's like, brother, Paul guy's writing some hard stuff. It's like, all right, man, we're in good company, okay? So Peter's talking to the believers, saying, Apostle Paul, writing stuff. Admittedly, there are some things in these letters of Paul that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, or to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, you, you read these couple of verses, 2 Peter chapter 3, and we can mine a lot of information out of them. What's interesting is that Peter equates the letters of Paul to scripture already. Like in the mid-60s A.D., the people are already recognizing that Paul's letters are on the equivalent basis of God's self-revelation as the Old Testament. So, I mean, that's almost a sermon in itself. What you also see is this. Peter is going, man, like I'm reading this. Some of this stuff is hard. It's like, all right, we're in good company. This encourages me a little bit. But what we need to see this morning from those verses out of 2 Peter is that the warning from Peter is that when we bump into something hard to understand, we're not to act ignorant and unstable. He said there's some people who are reading Paul, they bump into something hard, and in their ignorance and in their instability, what they do is they reach in and they grab it and they just start doing whatever they want with it, and it completely spins them out to their own destruction. So Peter's warning to us is we must not reach into our Bible, pull verses out of context, and just apply them however we want to. I mean, hopefully the dangers to this are just apparent. One danger to this approach of just reaching into our Bible and pulling things out of context, applying them, interpreting them however we want to, is we begin to say things like this. We bump into a hard text, we bump into just any piece of Scripture, and we begin to go, well, we just read this thing in the Bible, so this must mean that God is okay with it, and we're just supposed to do it. Like, we don't put any thinking. The Christian life involves thinking. We're not to be thoughtless Christians. We're to be thoughtful Christians. 
And the one danger is when we just thoughtlessly bump into the Scripture and we just read something and go, well, it's in the Bible, God's okay with must be okay with it. After all, it's in His Bible, we're just supposed to do it. It leads us down the path of destruction, Peter says. I mean, think about it. The Bible talks about such things as lying, adultery, sexual immorality, drunkenness. And what we don't do is go, well, the Bible talks about it, so it must be okay. We don't do that with those. So, like, why do we do that with certain hard texts? That's not the way we're, we're to approach the Scriptures. Just because the Bible talks about something doesn't give us permission to thoughtlessly prescribe them as right Christian conduct. And unfortunately, many, many take this approach with verse 29. And in doing so, they've actually drifted off in the realm of heresy. For instance, the Mormons, Mormon church holds to this idea that you can baptize, be baptized yourself for those who are dead so you can somehow graft them into the Mormon faith. There's other, and I use this term loosely, Christian denominations who hold to these sort of things as well, that baptism has some sort of salvific saving power beyond the grave. And it's just simply not true. So whenever we bump into a hard text like this, again, we have to ask the question, what are we to do? And the answer is this. We must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. That is the rule of thumb for how we think about the Bible. It isn't we come to Scripture and go, well, I believe this says. I don't know. I don't want to know what you believe about it. I want to know what the Bible says about itself. Scripture interpreting Scripture is the rule of thumb. It's the plumb line by which we go to the Bible and think about the Bible. So when we heed the warning of Peter and seek to live within the bounds of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, we can say at least two things about verse 29. What this verse teaches and what this verse does not teach. Verse 29, what it teaches, what it does not teach. Okay? So what this verse does not teach is that someone being baptized on behalf of the dead has the power to save that person. That that is not what is being taught here in verse 29. And the reason why we know that this is what is not being taught here in verse 29 is because there is nowhere else in Scripture where we find that baptism has the power to save. It would be foolish for us to come and build a major doctrine of some sort of saving power found in baptism for those who have died just because we see it mentioned one time in Scripture. We don't build doctrine that way. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. There's this idea called baptismal regeneration, which is the idea that one can be saved by being baptized. But what we see when we scale out to the entirety of Scripture that this idea of being baptized in order to be saved, it's entirely unbiblical. And if a person cannot save himself by being baptized, he certainly cannot save anyone else by being baptized on their behalf. Paul, nor any other biblical writer, has ever taught that a person who has died can be saved by another person's baptism. You won't find it in Scripture. So what you do is you let that reality of Scripture then become the lens by which you then look at and seek to understand what is being said in verse 29. So if that's what this verse does not teach, then the question then becomes, so what does this verse teach? What is going on? Again, what cannot be denied is that some in Corinth were being baptized on behalf of the dead. A lot of commentators, remember that number I gave you, like 40 different interpreters? A lot of commentators go, well, 
man, I know what it looks like, it says. But they feel that tension between, like, the Bible doesn't say this anywhere else. We don't want to, like, somehow attribute to Paul, like, some momentary lapse of, like, false doctrine sneaking into the Scriptures. And so what they do is they try to explain away the reality that people, re- like, when it says they were being baptized on behalf of the dead, I mean, baptized wasn't really being baptized. But just a plain, average, ordinary reading of verse 29, we just have to confess there were people being baptized on behalf of the dead in Corinth. But in light of what we just said, it, this does not mean. What I think that means is this. I believe, along with some others, that the Corinthians were getting themselves baptized on behalf of friends and family who had died unbaptized. So there were being baptized on behalf of others, but they weren't doing it trying to save others. What they were doing was this. They recognized that believer's baptism for what it was. They, they recognized that there was something significant about water baptism, that there's something wrapped up into baptism where when you go under the water and come up out of the water, what you're doing is you're identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection. And that they so, these Corinthian believers so understood this reality of what it means to be baptized, to be baptized into the death of Christ for our sins, and to be baptized into the newness of life that is found in him. This is Romans 6 language, that there was be believers in the Corinthian church who were once lost, now saved, but before they could get baptized, they died. And so that what believers still living would do is go, man, like my brother, my sister in Christ, they weren't able to be baptized into that fullness, just recognizing what all of that reality is, the the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And so what I'm going to do is get baptized on their behalf so that they can somehow experience this this reality. Now again, what we have to say is that we don't practice baptism for the dead in this way because we just simply don't see this prescribed anywhere else in the Bible. Even though I believe that's what was going on there, that still doesn't make it right. And this leads many to ask why Paul doesn't denounce this wrong practice knowing that he doesn't agree with it. Like, all you have to do is scale out and just read the letters of Paul in the New Testament. You would see that he would not agree with that. And you can even see it in some of the language. He's going to say, what do those people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Not what, not what we believe, but what are, those, like, what are those people doing in your midst who are actually believing this thing? And it spins some people out because they go, man, Paul had a primo chance to go, these people are doing this thing, and it's really wrong. You shouldn't be doing it. And there's been a lot of ink spilled on this. Like, why and how come? And Paul should have, Paul would have, Paul could have. But but when we do that, what we do is we get bogged down in the weeds. We miss the forest for the tree. All these are good questions, but we must recognize what was Paul doing in these verses. And this is the idea of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, understanding the context of where we're at. The reason why Paul Paul is going for, his purpose, his aim in verse 29 through 34, is he's trying to show them that even what they are saying with their own words, they are debunking with their own practice. Paul felt free to use their practice of being baptized on behalf of the dead as an illustration without approving their practice. 
We do this all the time whenever we, whenever we do arguments with people, debates. We enter into someone's world and go, I know you believe this, and I'm going to exist in this world where I say I believe what you believe to be true. And if we give credence to your belief, then this has to be the logical outcome. Like, we argue like that, and we talk like that all the time. Paul's simply doing the same thing. He's stepping into the world and going, and he's saying something like this. Listen, I, I don't necessarily agree with what you're doing, but I want you to see the bigger point. The very fact that you are so willing to be baptized on behalf of the dead is actually evidence for my argument that there actually is resurrection from the dead. People being baptized on behalf of the dead becomes an argument in Paul's corner to prove that the Corinthians don't even really believe what they're saying about the resurrection. They could say all they want. There is no resurrection of the dead. They could say that all day long, day in and day out, but if the dead are not raised, Paul says, why on earth are people being baptized on their behalf? Paul's aim was to show these believers that there was a disconnect between their belief and their practice. Listen, if death were the end of all things with no hope beyond the grave, why in the world are you doing something for them? That's Paul's point. He's saying if you honestly believe that when you die, you go into the grave and there's nothing else beyond them, why on earth are you giving yourself over to this practice which necessarily implies life beyond the grave? It makes no sense. You're saying one thing with your mouth, but functionally you're living your life in a way that's contrary to what you say you believe. If death were the end of all things with no hope beyond the grave, why do anything for them? It simply makes no sense for you to do what you were doing. And this was Paul's exact point. And he just simply felt for the freedom to be able to go into their world, not feel the, the need to debunk the wrong belief, their, their wrong, or to, to, to debunk the wrong practice, but to simply just use it in such a way where it goes, listen, you, what you're doing, it actually proves my point. There is, there is resurrection from the dead. Now, what I love about this little verse is that Paul is pushing for belief and practice to line up in the life of the believer. Do you see what he's doing there? He's actually approaching the Corinthians and saying, listen, you're believing one thing, you're practicing another, there is a horrible disconnect there, and you should not be satisfied with that. As Christ followers, we are not to be disconnected Christians in this way. Right belief is to lead to sound practice, and sound practice is to be rooted in right belief. That's why we give ourselves to the Scriptures so that the Scriptures will then begin to mold us and form us and shape us in the way we think, the way we act, and the way that we speak. The way we think, the way we act, the way we speak is meant to be shaped by the Scriptures. They play off of each other. They feed one another. So when it comes to asking ourselves, well, how do we think about verse 29 for us? I mean, after all, Delta, we're not holding a baptism for the dead service later this afternoon. We're not doing that. But I think what we needed to do is see the higher principle of what Paul is applying to them. Listen, Christian, your belief in the Scripture, your doctrinal confession, the things of the Bible are meant to work themselves out into the realm of sound practice. Orthodoxy should exist and manifest itself in orthopraxy. Doctrine leads to right living. 
That's what he's arguing for here in Scripture. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, where in my life are there disconnects between right belief and sound practice? Where are they at? What are these disconnects? We say things like this. We believe that biblical thinking is important. Belief. But then why are we so prone to fill ourselves with everything but Scripture? Practice. I believe the Bible is for life and godliness. Then it's like, why is your Bible just sit on the counter the whole, all week long and you don't get into it? You say you believe it's for life and godliness, but then you don't ever stick your nose into it and consume it and intake it and eat it and meditate and pray it. And that's a disconnect between life, belief, and practice. We say things like this. We believe that those who are lost and apart from Christ will stand before God, and if they stand before God apart from Christ, they go to hell forever. We believe this. But then the question becomes, then why are we withholding the good news of salvation found in Jesus Christ alone? Like if we genuinely believed that people die apart from Christ, spend eternity in hell separated from him, then why do we not open our mouth and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ more than we do? There's a disconnect there. If you say you believe, maybe as a husband, that family worship is important, as a, as a mommy, as a wife, that family worship is important, then why are we so willing to sacrifice our evening family time on the altar of self-pleasure? It's really important for me to lead my family in this way. But then we spend our evenings just doing whatever we want to do to serve and satisfy ourselves. There's a disconnect there. Listen, if you've ever gone swimming in the ocean, you've experienced this, where you go out into the ocean, you're having fun, it's warm, the waves are coming in, 15, 20 minutes later, you look up, you're like, where on earth am I? Those who have been to the beach, yeah? Like, right? It's like, my towel's like a half mile up the beach. How did I get down here? Like, I could have swore that I was just playing out in front of my beach towel. But what happens is just sort of the normal ebb and flow of the waves just sort of cause you to drift down the beach. Next thing you know, you look up and go, man, like, I didn't plan to be a half mile away from my beach towel. The drift just sort of happened. And oftentimes, that's same with belief and practice for the Christian. Years go by saying, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. Yes, I believe that those who die apart from Christ go to hell forever. And then it's five years, ten years, fifteen years, and you look up and go, like, I haven't shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with a single person. Like, how did we land there being so satisfied with that stark, horrifying disconnect between what we say we believe and the reality of letting that belief inform our practice? Listen, it is so, so, so easy to drift to the place where belief detaches itself from practice and we just sort of wake up on this spiritual beach half a mile from our from our beach towel going, what in the world just happened? How did I get here? How did I fritter away 15, 20, 30 years of my life saying one thing but doing something that's entirely contrary to what I say I believe? But the good news is, by the very grace of God, which He supplies that we are able to fight this drift, 
It's, it's in moments like these where you read the Scripture and God uses the Holy Spirit through the Scripture to begin to work on our lives, open our eyes to the reality that, man, I can just even right now see disconnects between what I say and confess to believe and the actual things that I do in my life. Our tendency is going to be this, buckle down, I've got to get myself fixed. But the good news of the gospel is this, you can't fix yourself. The good news of the gospel is this, the Father who is revealing this disconnect to you is the very one who's going to supply the necessary grace for you to be able to grow in this area. So don't go running from God right now and saying, I've got to fix this disconnect. What you do is you run to God and go, God, you've showed me the disconnect. God, grant the necessary grace so that I can, trusting, resting, not leaning on my own self, but leaning on you, begin to grow and mature in this area. So, that's verse 29. Where are we at here? Have we even started the sermon yet here? So, I mean, how many minutes are we into this thing? That's verse 29. Don't worry. Some of you are getting sweaty, thinking like we're going to get out at two. We're not. Verses 30 through 34, they, they pick up a little bit quicker here. Paul's point is this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then it makes no sense for the Corinthians to do what they're doing. He says, listen, you've got to wake up to this. It just makes no sense. You're deceiving yourself. So Paul now, having said this, he's going to turn to his own life to show the exact same thing, that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no gain in sacrificing one's life for the gospel. So he's looked at the life of the Corinthians and saying, listen, belief, practice, there's disconnect there. He's going to look at his own life and go, listen, what I believe about the resurrection to be true, that's why I live my life and do the things that I do. Look at verses 30 through 32. Paul writes, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Listen, if the dead are not raised, forget this. Let us eat, let us drink, tomorrow we die. Verse 30 through 32. Listen, it's not a news flash for most of us. Paul was a man who was absolutely lit by Christ, consumed with Jesus. He had a passion for Jesus that makes it look like we're almost unbelievers. I mean, that's how on fire Paul was for the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ. And this all-consuming passion for Jesus led him to lay his life on the line for the advancement of Christ daily. Paul could save himself, listen, I die every day. Just as surely as he could boast about the Corinthians in Christ Jesus the Lord, he could confess that his day in and day out experience was marked by danger of continuing to every day lay his life out on the line for the sake and the advancement of King Jesus' kingdom. Concerning his ministry, he could write this. Listen, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers... Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, 
danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, I was often without food, in cold and exposure. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Ultimately, Paul's ministry was marked with this, imprisonments, countless beatings, and he said, I was often near death. Why? For the sake of the gospel. And it's in light of this that Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then why on earth would I ever continually to day in and day out endanger myself like this? Why would I go out of my way in order to risk my neck like I do if, humanly speaking, this life is the only reward we have? Listen, if heaven is here on earth and that is all we get, Paul goes, forget this. I'm not going to give my life and put myself through such agony. No, says Paul, if the dead are not raised, then there is nothing to gain in a life lived for Christ. You have to hear that. If Jesus Christ is still a sack of bones in a Palestinian tomb, then what on earth are we even doing sitting here listening to me right now? I mean, we are pitiable fools giving ourselves to worship and the explaining of this book if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead. There's nothing to gain in a life lived for Christ if the dead are not raised. The only gain would be found in a life of ease. Let us eat, let us drink, tomorrow we die, says Paul. See, the reason why Paul pressed on with such a dangerous life was because he was convinced that something infinitely better awaited him in the resurrection that was to come. I mean, do you ever just go and read the book of Acts and wonder, what on earth fueled this man to go and do what he did? Like, I read the book of Acts and I see the life of Paul, and I'm like, God, make me like him. Grow me like this. Why am I so prone to shut my mouth when I see an opportunity to speak for Jesus? To my own shame, I do that more than I care to admit. And I go and I open my Bible, I read the book of Acts, and what I see is the Apostle Paul, yes, praying, like Ephesians chapter 6, praying, God, I need, I need you people, I need you, God, to come and help me, embolden me as an ambassador to speak as I ought to speak. But a lot of times you just see Paul going for broke, fueled, lit by the fame and the glory of Jesus Christ. He is bold. He's speaking the glories of Jesus even to the own detriment of his physical body over and over and over again. And we have to ask the question, why does he do this? And the answer boils down to this resurrection. He is fully gripped by the realities of the resurrection. I love Peterson's paraphrase of these verses. He writes this, And why do you think I keep risking my neck in this dangerous work? I look death in the face practically every day I live. Do you think I would do this if I wasn't convinced of your resurrection and mine as guaranteed by the resurrected Messiah, Jesus? Do you think I was just trying to act heroic when I fought the wild beasts in Ephesus, hoping it wouldn't be the end of me? Not on your life. It's resurrection, resurrection, always resurrection that undergirds everything I do and say the very way that I live. 
Listen, the guarantee of our future resurrection is meant to fill us with present-day courage. The certainty of the resurrection of the dead frees us from fear and equips us to go and boldly live for Jesus. If the resurrection were not true, what is there to gain in a life of abandonment to Christ? Hardship? Subpar living? Premature death? Paul says, no thanks. But if the resurrection is true, what is there to gain? Paul answers, Christ himself. It's Philippians chapter 1. If you need something to read this afternoon, go read it. Listen, the certainty of our future resurrection lifts our eyes. It causes us to lose our grip on the things of this world. It causes us to value Jesus above all, and ultimately it has this freeing effect on us which releases us to abandon ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you today during the response time are just going to need to pray, God, loosen my grip on the things of this world. May the things of this world go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Help me to see the resurrection for what it is. I am consumed with the horizontal. Help me to loosen my grip on the horizontal and to be consumed with the realities of the resurrection life that I have a future hope that makes the things of this world grow strangely dim. No resurrection makes no sense. No resurrection, nothing to gain. Lastly, Paul says, no resurrection, stop being deceived. Stop being deceived. 33, 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company. It ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Man, I love Paul. Paul's going to get a little point blank here. Just a little heads up. He's going to get into our face a little bit. For 32 verses, he's given nothing but fact, 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 fact. These are the first three commands that we have in chapter 15. Listen, don't be deceived. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. It's with these last words, Paul concludes his thoughts on the resurrection of the dead. He's just going to flat out directly warn the Corinthian believers not to be led astray by those who are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. He's done. He's turning on to a new subject matter, and we're going to see this next week. And so what he's going to do is he's going to put the exclamation point at the end of this big, long thought that there is indeed a resurrection from the dead. And he's going to knock it out with three commands. Paul's going to exhort them, listen, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. They were so at risk of being deceived and straying from the truth that Paul called them to wake up from their drunken stupor and to not go on sinning. It was as if they were inebriated on false belief, so consumed with it that it was skewing their senses. You drink too much alcohol, it completely distorts reality. Paul's like, you're drunk on false teaching. And it's distorting reality. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Do not go on sinning. Paul saw their willingness to entertain this deception as sin. They were drunk on this false teaching, and Paul's commands were meant to shock the Corinthians into a sobering sense of shame for even considering the thoughts of those who revealed that they truly have no knowledge of God because to deny the resurrection is to ultimately side yourself on the side of having no true knowledge of God. And Paul wasn't, simply put, Paul wasn't beyond the point of saying, listen, I'm saying this to your shame. I want, I want to shame you into sobriety. 
to recognize that this is not something that we mess around with. Jesus Christ crucified for our sins according to the Scripture, buried, and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures are the essential elements of the gospel. They're not to be played with. We cannot do away with them. Our Christian faith rides or dies on these realities. So how can you respond to these thoughts from the Word of God? It's pretty simple. If you're an unbeliever with us this morning, you might be going, what on earth was that about? I mean, probably good for the Christian people here, but like, really? Baptisms for dead people? It's a little weird. But the reality is this, that if you're an unbeliever here, if you're a skeptic, a doubter, genuinely trying to wrestle with this Christian thing, this Jesus thing, there is a response for you from these verses. You can respond to these words by asking yourself this question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And if you circle back up to verse 29, that funky verse about people being baptized on behalf of the dead, there are some people who will come to you and go, Sir, Madam, the way you answer the question, what must I do to be saved, from this verse, verse 29, is this. They'll say, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized in order to be saved. So if you want to be right with God, get up into the waters, go under the water, come out of the water, because in and through that, that is how you will find eternal life with God. But as we said earlier, this verse does not teach this, nor does the New Testament teach this. There is no power to save tied to baptism at all. Yes, baptism is a powerful picture of salvation, but in and of itself, baptism has no power to save. So again, we have to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? It was the question that we find in Scripture. And thankfully, God has an answer for that question in Scripture. The Bible is very clear that it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. The opportunity for salvation, the opportunity for us to have our sins forgiven, for us to be folded into the family of God, for us to be saved, Bible language there, this opportunity comes to us only this side of the grave. Upon death, that opportunity for salvation goes away and you and I will stand before God in judgment based upon whether or not you and I received Christ while living. Salvation is by personal faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not found in someone getting baptized on your behalf. Salvation is not found in you getting baptized on your behalf. Salvation, rightness with God, being declared not guilty for your sin before a holy and living God who must judge sin appropriately can only be found by personal faith in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Notice it's not by baptism you have been saved through faith, not by someone else's faith you have been saved through faith. No, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is God's gift to us to awaken our eyes, regenerate our heart so that the scales of worldliness and sin just fall from our eyes and we can finally truly see Jesus in all His glory, to see us in all of our rancid sins 
sinfulness and to see how our sinfulness separates us from a holy God and then to see that Jesus stands in that gap and becomes the mediator between God and men, reconciling sinners to the Father. That only comes through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And it's trusting and resting in faith upon Jesus Christ that he alone is the one who has accomplished this for us. No one is saved by baptism, either living or dead. The only way any person has ever come to God is by personal faith in the crucified and resurrected Christ. Have you done this? That's the only question you need to be thinking about. Have you done this? If you're a believer, there could be many responses. But one just may be asking yourself this, God, expose in my heart the areas where there's a disconnect between belief and practice. It's simple. My assumption is all of us are there because all of us are not Jesus. That's usually a good good thing to live by. You're not Jesus, probably an area of life I need to grow in, right? I'm not Jesus, got room for some improvement. So as a believer, what you can ask yourself is this, God, where in my life is belief and practice not lining up? Where are these things disconnected? So what we're going to do is we're just going to wrap up in prayer right now. As the band comes, they're going to come and lead us. I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to call us to respond in obedience. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for the way that you lead us and teach us from your word. God, admittedly, there was a lot that was said this morning. There was maybe a bunch of new concepts that came to us this morning from your word. But God, I pray that you would cut through what could be the potential fog of new concepts and information overload, and that what you would do is just narrow in on that one thing you want us to learn and understand and to take away from this morning. And that no matter what you call us to this morning, that what we would do is we would respond to the good news of God's grace, that we would run to the Father, and that we would walk forward in obedience to whatever you are calling us to. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.